So sorry for that trouble. As always, today it's an outstanding pleasure to be able to share with you from God's Word. Uh, it's my favorite thing to do. And so thank you for coming and being a part of this ministry. You didn't have to come here today, but you did. We really appreciate it. We're starting a new sermon series today that I've entitled Unstoppable. Uh, when we take a good look at the New Testament church from its inception in uh, Acts chapter 2 and follow that narrative of the church all the way through to Revelation, we see that the church of Jesus Christ is advancing throughout the world and will continue to do so until the end of this earthly age that we're living in. So the church, with a capital C, the universal church, the body of Christ, is unstoppable in its mission and ultimate victory in its union with Jesus Christ, the final fulfillment of scriptural prophecy is what the Bible tells us. In other words, what God has planned for His church, for the bride of Christ, and what He said is going to happen at the end of this New Testament dispensation, the end of this earthly age that we're living in, what He said is going to happen it's going to happen, whether we want it to or not, whether we work for it or we work against it, no matter how we feel about it, the church will prevail in its mission, and it will be joined with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's nothing any of us can do to stop that from happening. So in that sense, the church is unstoppable, and I'm so glad that God not only wrote the beginning of the story for us, He also finished the story, and it says that we win. The church has ultimate victory. It belongs to the Lord and His bride, the church, in the end. Okay, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll read verses 3 through 14. And then we're going to read another chunk of Scripture in Romans. I've been accused of reading half the Bible in every sermon. And people tell me that sometimes because I read a lot of Scripture. That's a compliment for me. Uh, there's nothing I can come up with that can compete with the Word of God. So we're going to read a little bit of Scripture and then we'll continue on. Ephesians 1. Um, 3-14 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Okay? So God had this all planned out before we were even created. That should give you comfort in knowing ultimately God has control. He's sovereign. Okay? To continue on that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Again, He has all this figured out already, okay? There's nothing we can do that's going to thwart God's plans for His church. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's awesome. Verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His, of his will. Again, this is all part of His plan, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Listen, I believe in free will. 
I don't believe in limited atonement, that Jesus just came and died for some. That is, that is uh, hardline Calvinist doctrine. Some believe that's fine. I, I, I disagree with that. I believe in free will. We have the right to choose, not the right. We have, we have been given the ability to choose. We can reject God. But if you're truly born again, you are a member of the church of Jesus Christ. And according to this passage, you have a guaranteed inheritance. Eternal inheritance in Him. Okay? If you, if you make that choice, that's a wonderful truth to behold. Okay? Now let's jump back to Romans and read chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. By the way, when I, if I mention Calvinism, that's a hot button for some people. Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. I'll just tell you that, okay? If you read Calvin's writings... I pretty much agree with most of everything Calvin said. His followers, after he died, started the doctrine of Calvinism, what we have today. And it's an extreme version of what Calvin taught. Calvin was a great man of God. Chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, we're in Romans now, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Isn't that true? The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I mean, God has this whole thing figured out. He's got it all worked out. And even when we're at a loss for how to pray, we can rely on God to do that through us. Isn't that awesome? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those who be justified, he also glorified. You see, we might suffer now. We might protest now. We might doubt now. We may question what God is up to now. We can worry about all sorts of things, and we often do, but the end of the story has been written out. And in the end, we who have suffered with Christ will also be glorified with Christ. If we back up yeah, that same chapter of Romans, just before the passage we just read, verses 16 and 17, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Could there be any better news than that? If we're truly following Christ, we can know and live in full confidence that we come out on the other side of this thing victorious. Victorious over anything and everything that the enemy has planned against us. That's what the word says, okay? And then in Revelation, just to put a period on this, we see the final result, the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
All right, uh, chapter 19, verses 6 through 9 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true works of God. So we, the body of Christ, the church, are the ones invited, of course, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That great day when prophecy is fulfilled and we're joined together in the presence of Jesus Christ. So despite all the twists and turns of this life, even after suffering and hurting, you know, all the difficult and sometimes devastating experiences that we go through, the Bible's clear. The church, the universal church, not this building, not this denomination, the people of God, the true church of Jesus Christ will prevail and are glorified in Christ. That's an awesome truth to get a hold of. Okay? You see, when we begin to view this mission and our role in the church in the context of a story where the end has already been determined and we come out on top, that really changes things. You begin to be more confident, much bolder in your witness, in your testimony. The fear of rejection begins to give way to an irresistible strength of knowledge that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain when we completely sell out Lock, stock, and barrel to the will of God. Forgetting the material vanities of this temporary life on earth and embracing the truth of eternal glory in Christ. In short, the church and its mission are unstoppable. Okay? And that's exceptionally good news for those of us who are a true part of the body of Christ. So the question then becomes not whether the universal church will advance. We know it will. The question is, what does this local church small city, what does upcountry church need to do to ensure that we remain an effective part of the living, active, powerful, universal church of Jesus Christ? Okay, of course, individually, that means we need to be true followers of Christ. We must be Christians. We know that. We have to accept Christ, submit ourselves completely to him and his will and follow him, but even on a larger scale, looking at the church, at this congregation, we should be asking the question, how can we as a local body remain an effective aspect of the larger worldwide body of Christ? How can we, upcountry church, how can we be a church on a mission? How can we become an unstoppable church? And that's what this sermon series is about. We've been talking about um, since the beginning of January, some things we can do to advance as a church. And we talked about holistic living, that sort of Hebraic way of thought, those of you that were here, what that means. We talked about inviting people to church, you know. We can have great services on Sunday. I can preach the best sermons that I can preach. The worship can be wonderful, but if we keep it to ourselves, if we, if we put a cap on it, the church won't grow. So you remember, we've asked, would you invite someone different every week this year to church? 52 times, would you invite someone to church this year? And many of you have been. I'll tell you, I've been inviting everybody. My wife and I have been inviting 
everybody. I invited the FedEx guy to come to church. Not the guy that was, no. Let me, let me just rewind. For those of you who were there last week, I, I can't actually bring myself to invite the UPS guy. It just seems so weird if he showed up in church and, not, you know, I'm the preacher. So I, um, pray with me on that one. We'll work through too. Sorry, if you weren't here last week, you missed a good story. It's funny because you tell these stories about your life in church. I've learned this over many years of ministry. I mean, I could, I could preach the deepest, most theologically wonderful sermon of all time. And the one thing people remember is that I was naked on my porch in front of the UPS guy. It's amazing to me. People come up to me from all over. Hey, I heard about your sermon. I'm like, awesome. What did you learn? That you shouldn't lock yourself out of the house anymore. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. I'm glad you learned that deep spiritual truth. Okay, so there you have it. Just want to remember what we're doing here. This thing has to become viral. We're off to a great start. We started in October. This is awesome. We, we're filling up our little sanctuary here. I hope we have to do it two or three times on Sunday. I hope we have to blow out walls and build a bigger building because God's doing something at Upcountry Church transforming this city. This is a good start, okay? It has to become viral. What does that mean? It means that each individual, including me, when we're not in here on Sundays, has to be out fulfilling the Great Commission. We have to be telling people about Jesus, dragging them in here by their bootstrings, whatever it takes, okay? So <clears throat> this sermon series is about being an unstoppable church. And today we're going to talk about the first aspect or answer to that question, how do we become an unstoppable church? And the answer is, today we're going to cover that the church must operate with integrity. All right? We're going to look at the life of King David in the context of this subject, as well as a few other passages, and we're going to see if we can gain a good understanding of just what it means for the church to operate with integrity. So let's start off by defining integrity according to Scripture, okay? Turn to 1 Kings chapter 9, and we'll read verses 4 and 5. 1 Kings 9, 4 and 5. Here the, the Lord appears to King Solomon, <coughs> who's David's son. And the passage says that he appeared to Solomon as he had earlier at Gibeon, which was he appeared to him in a dream at Gibeon. So here again, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream. This is, of course, after David had died. And Solomon assumed the throne. He's just completed building the temple. And here God is giving him instruction on how to live and how to lead his people. And he refers to King David when he's talking to Solomon. So verse 4, and as for you, talking to Solomon, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Okay, the Hebrew word for integrity here is, is tom. It's spelled tom, T-O-M, but it's pronounced tom. It means completeness or fullness. So, fullness of what? Verse 4 says integrity, or so fullness of heart and uprightness. So, the Hebrew word for heart in that verse, what does it mean? It means inner man which includes the mind and the will, the heart, meaning moral character, soul, understanding, okay? And then the Hebrew word for uprightness in the same verse means what is right, or evenness, or straightness. And interestingly enough, we see several times in Proverbs where integrity is contrasted against crookedness. 
Okay, so integrity is the opposite of crooked. It's, it's going straight. So David's integrity was fullness of moral character, understanding, evenness, and straightness. In short, integrity equals godly character. Those are all attributes of God, okay? So does this mean that David had godly character? <clears throat> Let's take a look and see. And this leads us to our second point. We'll just hurry through. Uh, point number two, what is God's view of integrity? Okay? The fact is, God is looking for people with integrity to do his work. He was then, all throughout the Old Testament. We see that he founded in David, and he's still looking for that today. God is still looking for men and women of integrity to carry out his will. If we look in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we find Samuel the prophet of God rebuking King Saul because he offered an unlawful sacrifice. He went against the command of the Lord. And in the course of Samuel's rebuke, he says in verse 14, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. When he says that, a man after his own heart, it's a reference to David, okay? Assuming the throne after Saul. As a side note, and you may have heard this, there are scholars who have speculated that he actually wasn't talking about David, that he was referring to Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment, and not David. But if you turn to Acts chapter 13... We see the Apostle Paul at the synagogue in Antioch preaching to the people there. And he starts out by giving this brief synopsis of the Old Testament history. And in verse 22 he says, And when he had removed him, that's referring to God removing Saul as king, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, there's no question about who we're talking about here, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Okay, so it's obvious here to me that there's no doubt David, according to Scripture, was a man after God's own heart. And God described him that way himself. So God has personally called David a man of integrity, a man after his own heart. This is the kind of person that God is constantly seeking to do his will. All right? And just a couple of other examples to make the point. In Job chapter 1, Satan comes before God and explains that he's been searching the world over, testing the character of God's people. He's looking for disloyalty among the people of God. And in verse 8, God replies, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant, Job? That's significant. God describes Job not just as a good guy, as a righteous guy. He says, Job is my servant. He's a man in service to God, okay? And then continuing on, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. The word here for upright in this verse comes from the same Hebrew root word used to describe David. Okay, in other words, Job and David are described by God to have many of these same qualities, and they're both chosen as servants of God. In describing Noah, who lived in a wicked generation, Genesis 6 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The word blameless in the Hebrew means complete or whole, having integrity. And of course, we know that God went on to use Noah to salvage humanity. God describes these men much in the same way. They were all men of integrity, all right? And then Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Same description. 
Same kind of person God's looking for. Clearly, the Father places a high value on integrity, okay? We see in the Old Testament that it's one of his chief concerns with his people, the, the presence of integrity among them. But what about now? Has, it, has that changed because we're living under a, a covenant of grace, under the New Testament covenant, the new covenant? How much emphasis does he place on integrity now? We don't have time to work through a whole survey of this, okay? But if you read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the entire letter is Paul teaching the Corinthian church about the importance of having godly character, integrity. Paul goes on and on about how important it is that the church functions with integrity. And then in uh, chapters 12 and 13 and 14, he talks about the spiritual gifts and how important they are. But it's all in the context of doing everything with integrity, with godly character. We read part of it, uh, we read part of it last week where Paul said, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.2 Godly character is so important to God in us that it trumps the gifts of the Spirit. Do you know that? He's far more concerned with godly character than he is the gifts. I've been in Pentecostal church for a long time. 30 plus years. And I've seen people who lacked any hint of godly character in their lives. People with no integrity whatsoever stand up and prophesy in church. I believe if the Apostle Paul had been there, he'd have shut them down. And at times I've actually seen pastors do that, stop people dead in their tracks if there was a known lack of integrity in that person's life. Paul was all about the gifts of the Spirit. And that's not to say, by the way, that God doesn't use imperfect people. We'll get to that. Paul was all about the gifts, but not at the expense of godly character. He described the gifts, how we should use them, what they're for. He encouraged them to be used. But it was all in the context of, but let me tell you something about that. And it was all about godly character, okay? So we're instructed in Scripture to place integrity, godly character at a premium, just as God does today. So what's God's view of integrity? He always has and still does put a premium on that, okay? And let's move to number three. Let's talk about what integrity means for the church. First, or A, if you're keeping an outline, it means repentance, okay? Without true repentance, there can be no integrity. We have all sinned. We're all guilty of sin. Therefore, until we repent, admit our sin, and ask for forgiveness, we cannot be a part of the local church, let alone the body of Christ, with any measure of integrity at all. You see... We can come to church and go through the motions. We can sing the songs. We can attend the fellowships. We can follow along the sermon. But without a repentant and regenerated heart in Christ, we're putting on a good show. And I think you probably know this already, but just to be clear, okay? Going to church doesn't save us. It doesn't make you a Christian. Being baptized in water doesn't save you. Taking communion doesn't save us. Being confirmed, we have lots of, I know of you from Catholic and Orthodox backgrounds. It's wonderful. That doesn't save you. Not according to the word. We're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 
okay? When we place our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, repent for our sins, turn from our former life, and begin following Jesus Christ, it is then and only then that we're truly saved. For there to be integrity in the church, this building has to be full of repentant people. Okay, can I say that again? For there to be integrity in this church, this building has to be full of repentant people. Not one of us can be saved without repentance because we've all sinned. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Romans 3, 23, 24, everybody knows this one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have all sinned and continue to sin and continuing to sin is what keeps us from walking in integrity, excuse me. As we continue to sin in our lives, that, what, that is what creates a void where integrity can't exist. We can't be double-minded. We can't live on both sides of that fence. I heard a pastor say the other day, and I wrote it down, I thought it was great. He said, sin always takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more than we want to pay. That's so true. I have found that I have to live a life of repentance, personally. I'm telling you that on a daily basis, as I spend time in prayer and in the Word of God, I ask the Father to search me and reveal in me any sin in my life. And guess what? Many times, I then have to repent for whatever it was I thought or said or did that was wrong. If I'm going to have any integrity in my life, in my ministry, I have to always be ready to respond when God calls me to repentance. It's the same for every single one of us. No one is exempt from that, okay? There is no integrity without repentance. Proverbs 10.9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. And then Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them, okay? Integrity means repentance. And then second, or B, integrity means consistency. In other words, we have to be the same out there as we are in here, okay? When you, when you put on to be someone that you're not, it usually doesn't go well, you know that? When I was right out of uh, college, I became a deputy sheriff. I've told you that. I work for the Pickens County Sheriff's Department. And my best friend in college did also. And so we worked together. We rented a house from Sheriff Stone in Pickens County up on Lake Kiwi. And so we lived together. We worked together. We worked for Sheriff Stone. We rented a house from Sheriff Stone. And if any of you know anything about Sheriff Stone, he's like Clint Eastwood in a Dirty Harry movie. This guy is as tough as nails. He was the sheriff there for 30-some years, I think. This is a hardened, tough cop. And Todd and I, going along, began to realize that on a regular basis, Sheriff Stone would just show up at our house unannounced and pay us a visit because he wanted to check on his house and see if we're taking care of it. Well, we're two bachelor guys, basically slobs. And we figured this out, so we decided there's got to be a plan here. So Todd and I sat down and we said, here's what we're going to do. Every Saturday, 
we'll, we'll clean inside and outside. Like in the summer, you've got to mow the lawn and weed eat and straighten up. And inside, the house is a wreck. So I said, here's the deal. Every other Saturday, I'll clean the inside of the house if you'll go out and do all the yard work. And then the next Saturday, we'll switch. And that's fair enough. And that's what we did. And it worked out great. Every other Saturday, we would take turns cleaning the house and cleaning up outside. And so on this particular Saturday, it was my turn to be outside doing the yard work and Todd's turn to be inside. And I'm, I'll never forget the rest of my life. I'm, I'm down in the yard by the lake. The house is kind of up on the hillside. And I've been mowing the lawn and it's hot. I'm a shirt off, sweating the whole thing, you know, very manly. And the, the lawnmower runs out of gas and I'm standing down there with a gas can getting ready to dump gasoline in the lawnmower. And the lawnmower had been running, so I didn't hear Sheriff Stone pull up, and Todd was inside, and he didn't hear it either. And you pull up behind the house. Todd comes out the front door, and he's wearing an apron. And he's got an oven mitt on and a pot in his hand and a little Brillo pad. Now, you have to understand Todd in this sense of humor. He comes out to tell me something, and he realizes how funny this looks because I'm down there putting gasoline in the... And he's got the whole getup on. And so I'm standing there, and I hear out of the blue, Oh, honey! And I look up, and it's Todd calling out to me. And standing three feet behind him is Sheriff Stone. (laughs) And I'm looking at him, and I'm going, because I know something bad is going to come out next. And he goes... As soon as you're done with the yard work, I'll have that favorite casserole of yours ready. No! (laughs) Completely dumbfounded. I'm just standing there. And Todd turns around and Sheriff Stone is standing right there looking. (laughs) And he kind of looks at me and he looks at Todd, shakes his head, gets back in his car and leaves. (laughs) It took us weeks Literally, to convince all of the deputies at the department that we weren't what they thought we were. (laughs) Consistency. We pretend to be something that we're not. It doesn't ever work out, right? When David was in the wilderness being chased by King Saul, he had opportunities to kill Saul, who had every intention of killing David. And even in the moments when, when he was alone with Saul, without Saul even knowing it, David could have easily taken Saul's life, but he refused. And consequently, he taught his men some important lessons about integrity. Let's just read 1 Samuel 24. I'll just read it quickly, 1 through 7. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of wild goats' rocks. He was going out to kill David. And he came to sheepfolds by the way, And where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. I'm not going to make a comment there. And then the men of David, I was going to say something funny, sorry. And then the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him. Because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. 
to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David was a man of integrity. He was the same, not only in what he said and in how he acted around those close to him, but he showed that same integrity even in the face of those who were seeking to take his life. Again, we looked at 2 Samuel a couple weeks ago where David very publicly danced before the Lord. His wife was so ashamed of him that she rebuked him. And David replied to his wife, chapter 6, verses 21, or verse 21. She says, it, he says to her, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. In other words, David wasn't the least bit concerned about what anyone else thought at this point. He was determined to worship the Lord the same, whether he was alone or in front of the entire nation. Okay? Being consistent in word and deed, no matter who is or isn't watching, is fundamental to our integrity. It's fundamental to this church if we're to have integrity. We have to be the same people out there as we are in here. You know, most people put on their best when they come to church on Sunday. We put on our best clothes. We put on our best face, our best attitude, our best speech, our best behavior. But the truth is, we have to get up every morning and put on our best for God every day. When we go to work, we go out into the community, we go to school. Everywhere we go all the time, we should be putting on our best for him, okay? Integrity means consistency. And third, or C, if you're keeping an outline, it means walking out what we believe. David walked in integrity. 1 Kings 9.4, we already read it. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness. Do according to all that I've commanded you in keeping my statutes and rules. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. We have to walk out what we believe if we're going to live with integrity. In Psalm 26, 1, David wrote, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. You see, David walked with the Lord. He walked in integrity. Noah walked with the Lord in integrity. Abraham walked with God in integrity. Moses walked with God in integrity. None of them were perfect, but they walked with God in integrity. Jesus invited his disciples to follow him, to walk with him. Okay? We've all been extended the same invitation. Integrity is more than just believing. It's living. It's walking out his word in our lives daily. It's the activity of following Christ, not just believing in what he said. Okay? So what does the integrity mean for the church? It means repentance. It means consistency. It means walking with God. All right? And finally, what does integrity not mean for the church? What integrity doesn't mean for the church? Well, first of all, and we'll go through this quickly, and I'll close. It does not mean that we're always right. Okay? The truth is sometimes we just don't have all the answers. And it's okay to admit that. 
If we were all knowing, if we were all understanding, we'd be God. And clearly we're not. Sometimes we just don't know why. Sometimes we don't know how long. And that's okay. So often Christians, and you know especially I think ministers, pastors, have a hard time admitting that we just don't know. But the truth is we can't always know everything. We can't always be right. Even David, in all his success, in all his wisdom, in his intimate relationship with God, admitted at times that he just didn't have the answers. Psalm 13, this is David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. David didn't always have the answers. But he was a man after God's own heart. Didn't have all the answers. He still had integrity. Why? Sometimes all he had were questions for God. It's all he could get out were questions. But he had integrity. So he was able to be honest about that, number one, with God, and admit it. And notice in the last two verses that even though he sometimes just didn't know what to do or say, he didn't lose his faith and trust in the one that does have all the answers. That's the key. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Integrity doesn't mean we're always right. It means we trust in the one who's always right. Okay, and finally, integrity does not mean, this is my last point, it does not mean that we're always perfect. The truth is, David screwed up a lot. You know, the well-known account of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then the consequent killing of her husband gets all the top billing when we talk about David and his sin. But the fact is he messed up a whole lot more than that. We don't have time to go through it all. He took a census of the people willfully violating God's command not to do that. Directly went against God. He lied to people at times. He, he actually lied to a priest one time. He was clearly not always the best father to his children. We don't have time to go into all this, but the point is David was human, and he screwed up. He sinned. He wasn't perfect. Yet even after his greatest sin with Bathsheba and the following events, murder, right? After adultery and murder, what does God say about David after that? We read it twice already. 1 Kings 9. After his sins of adultery and murder, God described David as a man who walked with integrity of heart and uprightness. Of course, we know David repented. We covered that. But the point is, even though we're far from perfect, even though we mess things up, as long as we don't give up, as long as we're repentant and continue on in the Lord, we can continue to walk with integrity. You hear me? That, that's got to sink in today. What does it mean for this church to be unstoppable? It means we have to have integrity, and we'll continue with, with part two of this next week. But along the lines of this last point, integrity does not mean perfection. I need to stop here and tell you something.
that the Holy Spirit said to me two days ago in my office when I was studying. Studying for this sermon, praying for you, as I do often every day. Writing this sermon, the Lord told me that I needed to say this to someone. I don't know who it's for. I have no idea. But I know that someone needs to hear this right now, okay? So I wrote it down, and I'm just going to tell you what the Lord said. The Holy Spirit told me to tell you that you must stop beating yourself up over your past. You have to stop beating yourself up over your past. He forgave you for that a long time ago. He forgave you for that the moment you asked for forgiveness. Now listen to me. It is finished. He paid for it on the cross. The moment you asked him to take it away, he cast it away from you as far as the east is from the west. It is finished. And you are free. That's the word of the Lord for somebody today. And I'm going to speak the word of God over you right now. You're no longer captive to sin and shame. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Child of God, you are free. You need to receive that word from the Lord today. The heavy chains of sin no longer have a hold on you. You need to walk in freedom today. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to pray in a moment that God would help us to lay down some burdens this morning. We need to stop carrying baggage around that we were never meant to carry. We cannot walk in integrity as long as we're drunk on fear and lies and guilt and shame. Okay? But just before we pray that prayer, I need to ask you this morning, is there anyone here who says, you know what, I, I'm not walking with the Lord, or maybe you did at some point in your life and you're not now. 